0: Let's give a warm welcome to Peter Lighthouse. Thanks very much, Andrew. I appreciate the introduction and uh, the invitation. I'm very disappointed that I can't be with you in person. Uh, At Theopolis, one of the main things that we do is hold conferences and classes and um, prefer to do them in person, of course, for the last year Uh, or for uh, part of the last year, we weren't able to do that. And uh, we've gotten back to in-person events. And I realized just how much happens at a conference like this or at a class that isn't during the official moments of the uh, sessions. Uh, I can can talk to you. I can take a few questions. But a lot of what happens at a conference like this is taking place during the snack breaks over coffee, uh, during the uh, football game, football match that you all are going to watch after after I'm done, um, that, that's all part of the conference experience and is, uh, in some ways, just as important as what happens in these uh, official sessions. So I'm, I'm very sorry to miss that. I'm very sorry to miss another visit to London. Um, I, I'd love, uh, I was making an annual visit for a number of years and uh, love, uh, I love stopping in and uh, exploring the city a little bit more each time. So, uh, but I appreciate the invitation. I'm glad we were able to work out the technical side of things. Uh, Tariq, I guess, is in is the one who has set up the uh, the uh, technical things. So, that, uh, thanks to him for for that work and to Judith for her work to make sure this is all coordinated. Um, and thank you, thank you all for coming uh, and uh, for this kind of odd format. I appreciate your tolerance for that. Uh, as, uh, as Andrew said, I'm going to talk about First and Second Kings, uh, but in this first talk, I'm going to give kind of a, a more general overview about um, theological history, as Andrew was talking about in the last hour. Uh, I, I'll have a, a slightly different um, take on it, I think, but uh, I think our, what we were saying, what we're going to say is compatible, and uh, uh, I'll present that in just a moment, but let me begin with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us through your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you are the Lord of time. You are the Lord of all things, the Lord of history. And we thank you that you revealed yourself in the course of time and the fullness of time. And we thank you that by knowing the history of your work with your people, we know you and that you've shown yourself uh, in public. You've shown yourself in the flesh. And we pray as we consider uh, kings, and as we think about other issues concerning our understanding of history, that you would give us insight and wisdom by your spirit. We pray that you would guide us and that uh, you'd give us, um, help us to grow and help us to be more faithful disciples as a result of this conference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My talks tomorrow are all going to be about uh, First and Second Kings, and let me give you a quick Overview of the topics. You'll be able to see this on your notes. Uh, the notes will roughly give you what uh, uh, what I'll be saying. Although my my actual talks rarely match up exactly with my notes, so uh, there'll be some some divergences. Uh, but I want to start out tomorrow morning with an overview of the Book of Kings and look at some of the logic of how it's put together. I think there's a theological. Uh, conclusion to draw just from the structure of the Book of Kings. So I want to talk about that at the beginning. And then we'll focus in on several uh, topics, key topics in the Book of Kings. The first will be the temple and the building of the temple, the uses of the temple throughout uh, the history of kings. Uh, We'll talk about prophets. Uh, Individual prophets are very prominent in the Book of Kings and uh, Elijah and Elisha especially are prominent uh, in the very center of the Book of Kings. Uh, structurally, at the center of the book, we have uh, an account, not so much of kings, but of the ministry of prophets. So uh, the book of kings is a, is a prophetic book as much as it is a political history. Uh, then I want to look at the divided kingdom, the causes of the divided kingdom, uh, what uh, lessons we can draw from the history of the divided kingdom about our own uh, divided uh, church, Uh, and uh, think about what God is doing in Israel and what God might be doing in our history as his people uh, through those divisions. And then uh, tomorrow, I'll conclude with the discussion of the end of the book of Kings and uh, the catastrophe that uh, is the end of, first of all, the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. And I want to uh, think about a theology of catastrophe. Um, uh, I had uh, 2020 in mind, but uh, Andrew has given a good uh, overview of the last several years and the tumult of the last several years. Uh, and uh, things do seem to be uh, upended in many uh, significant ways. And uh, I want to try, try to make some sense of that uh, using the book of Kings. Uh, the, the point of all this study in Kings, of course, as Andrew was saying, is not just to understand Israel's history or to, uh, to uh, get some grasp of, uh, of the ancient world. But to have an understanding of how uh, to understand how that history in Kings informs our uh, our understanding of the current moment in our own uh, in our own cultures in our own in our own nations uh, in our own churches, and so uh, when uh, on uh, Thursday my my final lecture will be trying to gather together some of the things things we've talked about with uh, in the Book of Kings, and uh, see how that might illuminate what we what we. Uh, have before us in the present day Uh, but as I said uh, uh, in this first session I want to give an an introduction to what I think of as uh, theological history and I'm going to do it under the rubric of typology um, and uh, talk about what I think typology is and how that uh, how that uh, gives us an understanding of a theological understanding of history Uh, and I want to uh, talk about that define it and fill it out fill out my definition a little bit uh, and then spend a little bit of time trying to probe that and uh, think about what a typological understanding of history, uh, what it leads us to look for as major factors and key uh, shifts and changes and uh, uh, and uh, and um, factors in 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 history what are the what are the driving forces of history? Uh, and I think the the Bible gives us insight into that, and I'm going to suggest that if we read it, as a typological account of history, then we can get some insight into uh, what are the main drivers of human history. Uh, in talking about typology, I wanna start by insisting that typology is not, as we might think, simply a hermeneutical method. When, when uh, Christians talk about typology, or thinking about typology, or as is often the case, dismiss typology, uh, it's often uh, as dismissing and discussing a way of reading the scriptures. Uh, and a way of reading the scriptures that looks for uh, shadows and foreshadowings uh, and pictures, snapshots of Jesus uh, all through the the Old Testament as uh, various kinds of foreshadowings of the gospel. Uh, And I do believe that that's part of what uh, typology involves. It does imply a particular way of reading scripture. It implies a kind of hermeneutical method. But when I'm talking about typology, that's not what I'm primarily talking about. Instead, I think the scriptures are uh, the scriptures are written in that fashion, and we read the scriptures in that fashion, because they're recording a history that is itself typological, that itself has foreshadowings and uh, antitypes and recurring patterns. That's not just a matter of the way that scriptures are written. The scriptures are written that way because the scriptures are highlighting the actual pattern, patterns of events, and the way that God acts in history. So typology, is, as uh, in my understanding, as I'm going to present it, is a theological understanding of history, not just a hermeneutical method, but a, a theology of events and a theology of history. <clears throat> and it does mean that history is centered on Christ. I mean, that's what typology means in its classic uses. Uh, Luke 24 is the kind of classic text, I won't go to it, but I'll remind you that uh, in a couple of cases, a couple of, situ- uh, uh, a couple of contexts, after Jesus' resurrection, he's with disciples in, uh, on the road to Emmaus first, and then he's back with his disciples in Jerusalem. And in both cases, he gives a Bible, a Bible lesson, and in both cases, he starts with Moses, the early books of the Old Testament, and he goes through the prophets and the Psalms. Uh, That is to say, the prophetic books, which would include what we think of as historical books. Uh, And uh, through the Psalms and uh, writings, the the Hebrew canon is divided into Torah and prophets and writings. Those are the three great divisions, and those are alluded to in Luke 24. And Jesus begins with Moses and goes on through the rest of the Old Testament. And he shows that uh, uh, the Old Testament is about him he shows uh, his disciples everything concerning himself in all the scriptures uh, Moses wrote about him and the prophets uh, wrote and spoke of Jesus and that means the histories are about Jesus they're part of his story in some fashion the writings uh, the 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 books of uh, the the books of wisdom or some of the narrative books that are included in the biblical writings the, the book of psalms all those are uh are uh, about uh, Those are about Christ, and specifically, they're about the sufferings and the glory of Christ. That's what he says is the central theme of the entire Old Testament. And as we'll see when we look at the structure of Kings tomorrow, I'll try to show that that's not just a matter of picking out a few kind of death and resurrection moments in the Old Testament, but it's part—it's written into the fabric of how the Old Testament tells its history. Uh, Its entire—the entire history of Kings—I'm going to argue tomorrow morning is about the death and resurrection of the, of, of the Davidic dynasty. It's about the death and resurrection of David. And that's what Jesus is teaching his disciples after his resurrection. He's showing them everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. And we know from the book of Acts that the, that the apostles, uh, they, they were good students in these Bible, these Bible classes. Uh, every time they open their mouths and begin talk, talking about the Old Testament, they're constantly talking about how uh, Christ is the key to the Old Testament how the Old Testament is about um, the sufferings and the glory of Christ. And these things had to happen in order to fulfill, uh, these things had to happen to Jesus in order to fulfill all that was spoken before. Uh, And that does mean that we have a certain way of reading the Old Testament, a certain way of understanding Old Testament history. And it does mean that we're looking for foreshadowings of Christ in the institutions of Israel. uh, That's... um, you know, the, the institutions of the temple. Jesus himself is the temple. Jesus is the greater priest. Jesus is the sacrifice that fulfills the entire sacrificial system. He's the one who comes to cleanse all the unclean. Entire, the entire institution of the temple is fulfilled in Jesus and his ministry. Uh, characters foreshadow Jesus. Uh, he's the last Adam. Uh, his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Uh, he's like a new Noah. Who's carrying his people through the floods uh, that are coming, and he's building an ark, the ark of the church, in which his people can be saved. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the greater prophet. He's like he's a prophet like Moses. He's the son of David, which means he's like a new Solomon. And you go on and on. He's a prophet like Jeremiah. He's uh, he's a prophet like Elisha. Uh, on and on through the Old Testament, you can find individual characters whose lives and ministries foreshadow different aspects of Jesus. Including his experience of death and resurrection, so you see little types and shadows of that uh, in the story of Joseph. For example, you see the the uh, the the down the down and up pattern that runs through the entire story of uh, of Joseph. Not only in his, uh, you know, he's thrown into a pit, he comes out of the pit, he's thrown into prison, he comes out of prison, uh, and he's out, uh, eventually elevated and becomes the the uh, ruler who gives food to the world. Uh, those those moments of uh, uh, of uh, those those uh, de- declines and the and the rising the declining and rising is a kind of death and resurrection. Uh, so all the way through the Old Testament we have these individuals that foreshadow uh, Jesus. Uh, we have events or patterns of events. Uh, the the Exodus is foreshadowing certain events in the life of Jesus. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. Uh, Luke tells us because his Exodus is going to take place in Jerusalem. He goes through a kind of Exodus in his childhood when his de- when his parents take him to um, down into Egypt uh, and so on. So um, that's, that's kind of the standard way of understanding typology, that it's a way of reading scripture and it's a way of reading scripture, looking for types and shadows of Jesus. But I wanna suggest that typology involves more than that. It, it involves not just a way of reading the scriptures, not just a hermeneutical method, but it involves a way of understanding the whole of reality and the entirety of history, not just the specific history that's recorded in scripture, but the entirety of history is, has, this, has a typological, uh, has typolog- typological features to it. And all creation has typological features to it. But what do I mean by that? Um, we're going to start with the, 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 the affirmation of the New Testament. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That word became flesh. But that word is also the word by whom, through whom all things were made. Or as Paul says in uh, Colossians, by him that is by Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Uh, uh, He's come not only as the creator of all things, but he's come to reconcile all things to himself. In him, everything coheres. Jesus is the secret reality of all things, not just the things that are recorded in scriptures, but everything in reality coheres in Jesus all of the story scripture coheres in Jesus. It's a coherent narrative. It's a coherent history from Adam to the end of Revelation uh, because Jesus is pervasive in that. Uh, And it's also the case that creation holds together, as Paul says. Creation coheres because uh, Jesus, the Logos, is the one who created it and the one who entered into this creation in order to reconcile all things to himself. And that means that everything in creation bears the imprint of the word. Uh, we could say everything in creation is a, a word spoken by the creator uh, to his creatures. God, spe- God, the, God the creator speaks to creatures through creatures. Uh, and sc- the scriptures are full of this. Um, you start, if you start hunting around for um, passages in scripture that talk about the creation speaking of God, The creation, speaking of the creature, Uh, we see it everywhere. Jesus, uh, the uh, God is like a lion. God is like an eagle who carries Israel out of Egypt. Jesus is like a hen gathering together his chicks, or he wishes he could gather together uh, Jerusalem. Jesus is like a lamb. The Lord is like a sun shining in its strength. Jesus is like the morning star. Uh, The Lord is like a torch. The Lord is a light. The Lord is a fire. The Lord is a fountain. The Lord is a great is a fortress. So not only created things, things that He created directly, but uh, things that are uh, that are human artifacts uh, rep, uh, represent, symbolize, typify the Creator, because God is a fortress. He's a high tower. The Lord is a king. That's that's a human office, but the Lord takes that office. The Lord is judge. Um, Jesus is the priest. In in Jesus parables the Lord uh, he presents the father as the landowner and as the king. So uh, having a typology, typological understanding of scripture not only involves understanding the specific stories and institutions and characters of scripture in the light of Christ and seeing how they reveal something of Christ but also understanding how the whole of a whole of creation should be understood typologically or symbolically. We're surrounded constantly, inescapably. We're surrounded by a creation that tells us about God. Uh, The the divine power and his uh, invisible nature are clearly seen in what he's made, and that doesn't just mean in some kind of generic sense, but the scriptures tell us that in all kinds of specific ways, the specific things that God made and things that we make uh, somehow represent and and reveal God to us. It's a, it's a theological understanding of the cosmos. Um, and it's not simply that the God has made this world and it, it kind of symbolizes him at a distance. You've got the creation out there and it points back to the God who is kind of uh, distant from it. Uh, that's not the picture that we get in scripture. Instead, God is present and active in his creation. We never meet uh, if we're studying creation, we never meet a bare fact, we never meet a merely material reality that isn't somehow an expression of God's character, that isn't somehow uh, a manifestation of God's presence. Everything in creation is uh, made by him, and everything is, uh, has its meaning uh, through him. The logos uh, is the, the word, the logic, the rationale the 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 reason uh, th- that uh, explains everything, um, so that's that's part of understanding typology. That uh, the whole creation is surrounded, uh, the, the creation that surrounds us is a typological creation. It's a symbolic creation that's revealing God to us at every moment. And that a typological understanding of uh, also means that history in general, not just the history that's recorded in scriptures, but history in general is the arena, uh, the the stage for the drama of God's self-revelation and the, God, the drama of God's work in history and God's uh, uh, presence in history. Uh, we see the hints of this in some of the church fathers where uh, they read the scriptures typologically, they recognize Jesus being foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and they see that the New Testament is all about explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, but they extend that beyond the Old Testament. And so you can find church fathers who talk about various pagan heroes and pagan events uh, as if they were types of Jesus. And, and they recognize that they're distorted. But every every pagan culture had priests. Every, virtually every pagan culture had some system of sacrifice. There's some kind of dim... A distorted foreshadowing of the hero, the true hero, Jesus, in all the myths of heroes, uh, and sometimes the church fathers found uh, very specific foreshadowings of Jesus in pagan literature. Uh, the, one of the one of the uh, examples that you find in number in a number of the church fathers is the the episode in the Odyssey where Odysseus uh, he's on his ship. Uh, and they're passing by the 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 shores where the sirens are singing. Or if you've seen, oh brother, where art The sirens are singing. The sirens are dangerous because their singing is so sweet and so seductive and so magnetic that they attract uh, ships and captains uh, to uh, listen more closely. They want to get closer and so the the ships go over toward the shore, and there's 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 a rocky shoreline, and the ships are broken up on the shore, uh, and the sirens are the sirens are uh, sweet singers who cause uh, the death of the death of the singers, um, uh, the, the death rather of of ships and seamen, and and, and uh, Odysseus wants to hear the he wants to hear those uh, those sirens. Um, but he realizes that he would be in danger. <clears throat> excuse me, he would be in danger of directing the ship over to the rocks. And so he does two things. He fills his uh, his uh, sailors' ears with wax so they can't hear. He's the only one who's going to be able to hear the sirens. And then he ties himself to the mast. Uh, and so he can't he can't move around and he can't give instructions to his crew. And so. Uh, He's listening to the sirens. He's tied to the mast. And the church fathers see this image of a hero tied to the mast of a ship. And they think, well, that's like the cross. And somehow they make some theological sense, some Christological sense of the, the wax that's in the ears. Maybe they think of that as the, the deafness of uh, of, of sinners to the to the voice of God or to the sweet sound of the of the gospel or something like that, but they make a typological application of this episode from the Odyssey. Now, I think that that's that may be fanciful, but uh, um, I think the the instinct is right that they are trying to understand the whole of history, not just the history that's recorded in Scripture, not just the history of Israel. They're taking the history of Israel as exemplary. Um, of the history of the whole of humanity, the history of the cosmos. And they recognize that the whole of history finds its coherence in Jesus. The whole of history has its meaning in him. The whole of history is a, the arena and the form of God's revelation. And we can think about this in, in, in terms of the gospel story, uh, the, the, the way that this works. Um, Jesus, uh, the, the word, the Logos comes in the flesh, reveals himself in Jesus, and we know that when we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. And how do we know Jesus? We know Jesus 2,000 years after Jesus because we have a narrative of events of Jesus' life. And that narrative of events is a narrative of things that happen that are historical events that reveal to us the truth of all things, reveal to us Jesus, and Jesus comes as the revelation of the Father. And so, by telling this particular story, this sequence of events in actual history, uh, we are, uh, we, uh, the, the, the reality of everything is disclose, disclosed to us, the key to everything, which is the eternal Logos uh, who reveals the Father. Um, so, that's, that's the way that all of history works. All of history. Is a self-revelation of God. It's His interaction with the human race. He's done that with Israel, and that's recorded in the Old Testament. But that's a key to understanding the whole history of the Logos, the whole history of God's dealings with humanity, and with His world. So, uh, in the Gospels, we don't try to, uh, we don't try to kind of sidestep, slip around the narrative of the Gospels in order to see and understand who God is. Um, We don't try to peel back the events and say, I want to to get to the reality of things. And, you know, all we're seeing are, you know, we're seeing Jesus Jesus teaching, we're seeing Jesus telling parables, we're seeing Jesus healing and casting out demons and so on. I want to get to the real thing and peel back those events to get to the stark reality of God himself. That's not the way it works. The narrative itself is our access to the God, God who is the creator and the redeemer of the world. It's our access to Jesus, and through Jesus, we have access to the Father. Uh, so and that so that's that's the way history as a whole is working. We don't peel back the events of history to, to try to uh, or try to ascend past the events of history uh, in order to understand God. We uh, we immerse ourselves in history, understood biblically, as I'll, as I'll elaborate in a moment. We immerse ourselves in history, try to understand history in order to. Know the God of history because that's the arena, that's, that's the stage on which He reveals Himself. Uh, rather than again trying to trying to transcend history or peel back to history in order to, you know, we try to get past time in order to get back to eternal things. No, that's not that's not the biblical or Christian understanding of history. Uh, rather, we uh, engage with God precisely in history, and we understand that history. Because Scripture has recorded an exact an exemplary history that is the history of Israel. Uh, so Scripture is key. Uh, if we just had the uh, all the tumult of human history, all the complexity of human history, without a God's own account of history to give us insight into what's crucial, uh, into the real dynamics of history, then it we'd be at we'd be at sea. We'd be at a loss. There's just too much to take in, and it's too complex. But Scripture gives us this exemplary history of Israel uh, that culminates with Jesus and with the church, that history gives us a clue and an insight into how we're to understand uh, all of history. And it does that by, uh, in a number of ways. Scripture discloses the recurring patterns of events, uh, not just recurring patterns of events that take place in biblical history, but the recurring patterns of events that having taken place in biblical history now are revealing to us the recurring pattern of events in human history generally. Um, I can, I can uh, Andrew's been talking about my books. I can talk about his book that he co-authored with Alastair Roberts, uh, um, Echoes of Exodus, which is all about the way that the Exodus pattern uh, recurs throughout the biblical history in large patterns and in small patterns. you got the two great exodi, exoduses, uh, the exodus from Egypt and the eventual exodus out of exile later on but you have then you have uh, Abraham goes on an exodus, the ark goes on an exodus in first Samuel. you have small-scale exoduses every time you have a judge arise, he's a new Moses who's leading people out of slavery. They don't move geographically from one place to another but they're brought out of slavery. that's a the book of judges is just a series of exodus stories. Uh, we have that recurring pattern but that's not just a recurring pattern. It's not just a literary style. It's not just there to give us kind of a delight. Oh yeah, I'm I'm seeing the Exodus pattern, and that's kind of fun to be able to. It's like uh, hidden pictures. I'm seeing I'm seeing the hidden picture in this story. Uh, That is delightful, but it's also supposed to give us insight not only into the history of the Bible, but into the history of God's people, uh, and the in the history of humanity outside the Bible. There are Exodus kind of events that have gone on ever since, and when we see ourselves in uh, we, find it, we can find ourselves in the midst of one of those exodus events where the people of God are going into exile, into kind of slavery, falling, into, falling under the power of some uh, ungodly power. Uh, and we start crying out for deliverance and we look for the deliverance that God has promised. We find ourselves in that kind of exodus story. But it's not just happened in the Old Testament, not just happened in scripture, but it's happen- happening in history. Uh, and again, this is not just a literary device. God is revealing to us the secrets of history, the secret patterns and dynamics and factors of history uh, through, the of, uh, through the course of Scripture. And we need, in order to have a theological understanding of history, we need to have a biblical, biblical eyes uh, that uh, and uh, to understand Scripture typologically, as I've been explaining it, so that we can see the typological patterns within history as a whole, and we can understand something about our own times. Uh, Let me me expand on that last point a little bit by talking about what it is that I think are the main factors and movers of human history, and this will take us to the place where we want to start it tomorrow morning when I start talking about uh, the Book of uh, Kings directly. (coughs) So my question is, what are the main drivers of human history? There are various ways uh, to, to think about this. I think Christians often think in terms of kind of intellectual history. <coughs> we think ideas are important. Ideas have consequences, as Richard Weaver wrote many years ago. And we think ideas are the drivers of history. Um, uh, Andrew mentioned Carl Truman's recent book about the, uh, the, the development of the modern ideas of the self. And that's largely an intellectual history that leads up to the present and looks at the ideas that have produced a particular vision of the self in our current day. And I think that's true. Uh, Ideas do have consequences and ideas are important factors in history. Uh, But I don't think that's a complete understanding of the dynamics of history. Um, After all, human beings are not just minds. Uh, Even our minds are interacting in some mysterious way with the physical organ of our brains. Um, We have bodies, and our bodies are important factors, our actions, our bodily actions, are certainly important factors in history. Um, Historical conditions, material conditions, are important factors of history, and even conditions, they condition our ideas. Uh, In his first talk, Andrew mentioned the process of industrialization, which is such a key element of the modern world. And its industrialization not only changes the physical conditions that we live under, Uh, Andrew was talking about both the positive and negative side of industrialization with the uh, the great increase in wealth and efficiency, the great increase in mastery of creation, which are, I agree with Andrew, are gifts of God. And then the devastation that industrialization is often done to the environment, the way it's sometimes uh, uh, dehumanized Human beings and turn human beings into cogs in a machine. Those are also effects of industrialization, but those those conditions not only affect our actions, but a, a movement or a process like industrialization is also affecting the way we think and the, what we think of as as possibilities. Um, I mean, uh, uh, we uh, even even ten years ago, certainly twenty years ago, uh, what we're doing right now, what I'm doing right now. Uh, would have been an object of fantasy. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit longer, past, uh, longer in the past than that. But it would have been fantasy that I could sit in my office in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, and speak to a group of people in London, and participate in a lecture, uh, speaking over a video call like this. Uh, that that possibility was not there. And so it expands our imagination. The the new technologies expand our imagination. They start. Uh, they they affect the way we. Conceive of the world; it's not just a matter of how we act, but the, those kind of material changes in material culture uh, uh, affect the way we think. And besides, ideas, in order to be effective, ideas have to have uh, 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 they have to have vehicles of transmission. They have to be dis- they have to be disseminated. I could have great ideas in my head, but if I had no way of communicating those, uh, I, my ideas would just die with me in my head. Uh, communic- I communicate those physically through speech in personal uh, personal encounters. I can do that through writing. Uh, we now have technologies where you can transmit ideas uh, into this vast anonymous sea of potential recipients that's the internet. Um, So ideas by themselves, just as thoughts in the head don't have consequences, (coughs) they might have consequences for how I behave, but they don't have consequences for anyone else. (coughs) Pardon me. Excuse me. So what I'm trying to get at is that uh, um, ideas by themselves are not, uh, can't be just the sole driver of history On the other hand, I don't think we can say that bodily action apart from ideas are the drivers of body history. We want to find somewhere where these two things come together. We want to find somewhere where ideas and actions cohere and are entwined. Uh, I think we have some reason to think that they are entwined because human beings are rational creatures, at least that, Uh, the the idea of uh, a completely (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me. a completely unmotivated human action is nonsensical. We can have human behavior, perhaps, that's completely irrational. Uh, that's hard to conceive of. But human action has intention and it has reasons to it. Uh, so our bodily actions embody ideas. Ideas are only transmitted and become effective in the world because they become embodied and they're transmitted through various material means. So we have to find some place, some way of getting at that nexus of ideas and actions. Uh, and uh, in a recent, uh, uh, recent book by, uh, by John Milbank, John Milbank is my, was my uh, doctoral supervisor at Cambridge uh, some years ago uh, and a book called Beyond Secular Order he argues that, that religion is the place where we look to see this coalition, uh, coalescence of ideas and action. Um, that's, where, that's really the key to understanding how history moves. You know, in any religious system you have beliefs, beliefs about uh, the important things of the world, values about the gods, about powers that are beyond human powers, but uh, 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 religious systems are not simply systems of belief, but they're also systems of action that include certain kind of moral imperatives, certain kind of ways of behaving that go with that. Uh, and not just ways of behaving, but specifically ways of behaving in relation to the gods, that is, they involve forms of worship. Uh, so it's in, it's, in, uh, it's in religion that you have this uh, Im- embodiment, this direct embodiment of beliefs uh, in uh, in worship or in liturgy, in what you could call uh, the cult. So you have a mythos, a myth, a story, an understanding of the of the world, and a cult, a way of a way of acting uh, in relation to the mysteries of the world, and these come together in religious practice and religious belief. And uh, and um, the, uh, Christianity is particularly suited uh, to uh, being a being a key to understanding how those two things coalesce. That is to understand how ideas uh, and actions come together. Uh, Christian liturgy is unique. uh, It was unique in the ancient world. Uh, uh, It has a a cult, it has a liturgical system, it has a system of worship um, uh, as ancient uh, Greek and Roman religions do. But the Greek and Roman religions, the cults of Greece and Rome were largely cults that had to do with the, the Olympian gods, or the Roman equivalent of Olympian gods, which are not necessarily understood to be the main the main powers in the universe. I mean, Paul finds in Athens uh, an altar to the unknown god. There's some power above and beyond the, the gods that you can name. You can build an altar to Zeus, you can build an altar to Athena, but then there's this other thing that we don't know about and we'll build an altar to him, but we don't really have any contact in, with him. We don't have any stories about that unknown God. We don't really have much of a cult. We can't really interact with him. Uh, so Greek, Greek religion is, doesn't really contact, it's not a point of contact with ultimate realities. Uh, it's a way of embodying beliefs, but they're not really the beliefs about the ultimate realities, but about the uh, kind of subordinate polytheistic gods. Christianity though, uh, is a religion that is a, involves a cult, a way of worship, a liturgy, that is a, uh, a way of having contact with the most, uh, most transcendent of all beings, the creator of the universe. And we can have contact with him through bodily actions like speaking, uh, in, in uh, preaching and teaching and in prayer and in song. We can have contact with him in bodily actions like uh, receiving bread and wine and eating bread and wine, common bodily actions. Uh, the, 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 the feast of the, of the Lord's Supper is not just a feast before some kind of subordinate local God. It's before the God, God of the universe. And we have real communion with that God of the universe. And then the Christian God also has a story Again, the, the unknown God of the Greece doesn't have a story. <clears throat> the Christian God does. The high God, <clears throat> the Creator God, the Logos, that is the rationale and the reason of everything, he can be described in a story, which is the gospel story, or more generally, the entire the entirety of scripture. So Christianity is a place where human action and human belief come together uh, most. Uh, intimately. Uh, if We pay attention to what's going on in the church, and particularly, I want to argue what's going on in the way the church uh, teaches and proclaims the word, uh, and in how the church worships. You could say word and sacrament, its teaching and its liturgy. I want to suggest that those are the places where we look to see this linkage, the deep linkage of ideas and practices that are the uh, underlying and the foundational factors of human history. And I think uh, uh, we're gonna see that borne out when we look at first and second Kings tomorrow. We'll be looking at uh, the temple as a liturgical system and understanding what's going on with the temple is a key to understanding the history of Israel in that during the monarchy. And I think that will give us clues to understanding our own history. If we look at what's happening with the word, the words of the prophets specifically, uh, we'll see that that's a key to understanding the history of kings. Uh, The rise and fall of nations has to do with the word of God and how people respond to the word of God. Um, That's more central, The, the temple and the word of the prophet are more crucial than all the political machinations of the ancient world all the military scheming, all the military ups and downs and victories and defeats of the ancient world. If we want to get to the uh, kind of to the foundations, of, a foundational understanding of what drives history. We want to go there. We want to go to the in kings, to the temple and to the prophets or in Christian terms to word and sacrament, word and liturgy. And we'll see how that works itself out as we under, try to understand the history of the divided kingdom and how that's related to uh, the, the questions of word and sacrament, word and liturgy, uh, and and look at the end of Kings and try to develop a theology of catastrophe. Um, and that will give us, I think, an insight by understanding by understanding scripture in this way, understanding this as a kind of typological key, scripture is a typological key to history as a whole, we'll be able to gain greater insight, deeper insight into what's happening around us and how to respond to it. Um, because I think the, the Bible get, the Bible directs us to different sorts of things that might preoccupy our minds and might and certainly different things that preoccupy secular historians who are looking at uh, material dynamics and political power and economic uh, economic cause and effect but missing what is really the key driver of history which is the word of god uh, and the worship of god uh, so with that uh, I'll pause uh, for questions if you have any yeah, I guess um, I'm fascinated by the idea of God being revealed in human artifacts. I think we often talk about God's revelation in creation, but less so in artifacts. Can you give any, I guess, like initial thoughts as to how that might feed into um, like ministry in an urban context um, and, and how that shapes our understanding of yeah, ministering to people in the city? like How, how might that look? Mm. Um that's not a that's not an angle that I' particularly thought about um, it's uh, I think that's a that's a great question uh, let me let me say a few things about it that uh, this is I' I'm, I'm kind of beginning from a distance and maybe I'll say something useful uh, I don't know if I will or not but I'll try um, I mean, I, I, my first thought is uh, to think about um, and I'm sure if you're administering in an urban context you've thought about this um, the the um, uh, the, the the material design and uh, pattern of the city and how the the um, the way the city is built is revealing certain kinds of values and certain kinds of priority. I think of the difference obviously between um, you know a medieval medieval town in England, where you have um, would have a, often have a church at the center, sometimes a monastery would become the center of, an, of a of a village that would grow up around it. As opposed to a modern city where you have, um, you know, of buildings that house businesses and finance, uh, and um, and political buildings as the central uh, central buildings and things radiate around that. Um, so I think thinking about um, thinking about how that affects um, the way that people prioritize things. I mean, that just the physical design of uh, of, uh, of a city. I think too of how. Uh, in Scripture, you have uh, architectural designs, but buildings that are designed according to the pattern of the glory. Like uh, the tabernacle and the temple are uh, specific buildings that are designed after the pattern of the Lord's glory that's revealed on Sinai. Uh, the, the tabernacle and temple are, have multi, multi levels multiple levels of symbolism, but that's one level of it. <coughs> so those buildings, are deliberately designed to manifest that, that might give us a clue to understanding how uh, cities might be designed to manifest the glory of God, how life in the city might be patterned to manifest the glory of God, um, just as with the tabernacle and temple's kind of test case, or you know, the way the tabernacle and temple grow up into a city, um, the, the New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, and thinking through the symbolism of Revelation 21 and 22, as clues to the meaning of a city and to a city that's designed according to the glory of God, um, those are just some kind of scattered thoughts that uh, um, that come off the top of my head. Which is <laughs> there's there's some sniggering down here. Um, sorry, you would call it sniggering uh, the fact that you, that's off the top of your head. So that's good. Um, yeah, the the tallest the tallest building in any city tells you a lot, doesn't it? Uh, just yeah. what what are people value around here? I, I thought I saw a hand right over on Andrew. Okay. and touch it uh thank you so much peter uh, in this matter of archetypes um which has also been pursued in ordinary literature as well mm. very much for it and love seeing those things do you, do you think there's a list of, of of the main archetypes in scripture that you have in your mind maybe that maybe that you'd cover or do you think there are any dangers of that or are there hierarchy of such archety- archetypes and types yeah I uh, the answer to the first question would be um, yes. I, I I think that um, um, think of you can think of scripture in kind of an organic metaphor that it grows up from the seeds that are planted in the early chapters of Genesis, and I think uh, virtually every major uh, figure type archetype of scripture is somehow anticipated in Genesis one through three. Um, the creation itself. Uh, has uh, is um, uh, uh, um, you have you have the, the objects that God has created and also the ge- general form, the way that God creates by uh, by forming and filling that pattern is something that recurs throughout Scripture. the The, the Garden of Eden becomes the pattern for uh, later um, sanctuaries for the for the city of Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, at the end of Revelation. Obviously, the fall. Uh, is the archetype of falls. So it, if you, uh, uh, my, my recent book, Theopolitan Reading is basically a meditation on this, trying to, trying, to re, trying to think through typology and typological reading by taking Genesis 1 to 3 as the, as the foundation or the, or the seeds from which everything else grows. So there are various permutations of Adam until you get to the last Adam. There are various permutations of Eve until you get to the church, which is the, the new Eve. There are permutations of the garden. Uh, there, there are various kinds of serpent figures through the Bible. So that, that, that's a place where I would go to get a kind of grasp of that Doesn't That's not exhaustive, I wouldn't say. And I think it, I'd be hesitant to say that you want to come up with a, an exhaustive list. But um, fixing Genesis 1 through 3 in your head is a good way to get started. Um, I think there are certainly dangers in... Um, I mean, there... I don't think they're, de- the people, people want to talk about going too far and trying to read typologically. <clears throat> and I think that's the, that's the wrong way to put it. I think it's simply a matter of, um, a, a typological reading that's well done and typological reading that's poorly done. I don't think it's a matter of going too far or not going far enough. I think it's just doing, doing it well or doing it badly. And doing it well or badly means doing it in ways that are consistent with the, with the, with the, um, the logic of the text consistent with the grain of the text. Um, you want to read in a way that uh, that uh, uh, you can find confirmation, you know, you can uh, <coughs> you might read something you say, well, that seems to me like it's pointing ahead to Christ in this and such a way. And then you find, well, Hebrews actually says that later on. So, you know, there's there's a kind of confirmation, but that means you're reading with the grain of the text. Uh, and I think the the key to the key to uh, avoiding uh, bad reading. Um, this is another point that I develop in Theopolitan reading. The key is not a set of rules. I think the key is uh, is uh, people. Uh, even if you have a set of rules, and I, I'm not against rules, but even if you, have, if you have a set of rules for reading, you still need people to apply it. And what you really need is um, uh, a community of readers. Community of people who are diligently searching the scriptures together uh, and are willing to say, uh, uh, no, that's wrong. <laughs> that, that's, that's not a good reading uh, for these reasons. That's not with the grain of the text. You're deviating from the text. Uh, that, uh, that's, it's the community of readers that's really the, the uh, check on bad reading. Thanks. One particular example of that is the story of Joseph, which you've already mentioned. Yeah. now Joseph ends with um, Joseph being reconciled to his brothers after he has put his brothers through quite a bit of testing um, can we see in that some clues towards the future history of the Jews and their relationship with Christ um, well this this goes into uh, a different understandings of what uh, what Paul's getting at for example in Romans 9 through 11. Um, I think that I think it is a type of reconciliation with the Jews. I don't see it as uh, and I don't read Romans 9 through11 as describing a future uh, gathering in of Jews. I think that Paul's talking about something that's happening within the context of the first century of the first century church. Um, I think you can you can certainly see if Joseph is a type of Christ, uh, Joseph and his eleven brothers, And then you have Jesus after the resurrection and his remaining 11 disciples. And I think that's that's actually a helpful way to think about what the kind of the the emotional dynamics of the disciples seeing Jesus for the first time. (laughs) Um, We all ran away, and now he's back. And what's he going to think of us? Um, And uh, uh, Jesus, obviously, as Joseph does, uh, welcomes them and reconciles. and. Uh, <clears throat> I think that's certainly there. Uh, I, again, I see uh, Romans 9-11 through 11 as Paul is already provoking the Jews to jealousy by his ministry to the Gentiles. The book of Acts shows us thousands upon thousands of Jewish believers, Pharisees, priests, uh, common Jews uh, coming into the church, not every last Jew, but I think Acts is showing us uh, the uh, the incoming of the Jews that Paul talks about in Romans nine through eleven. Um, so, so I, I don't see that as the future. But I, I, I would say uh, Joseph with his brothers is a, is a type of that reconciliation that's taking place within the first century. Thanks, Peter. I've got a question about, um, like the process of assigning meaning, theological meaning to history outside of Scripture. Do you have any mm-hmm. comments on how we might avoid? Um, uh very overly specific uh assigning of meaning to things that you might find say in historicist readings of revelation yeah um, yeah where the eu is good or the eu is bad or whatever (laughs) right yeah i think that um uh, my my first answer is to repeat what i said a moment ago which is um the the check on bad reading is having better readers around and, uh, um, and and other people who are who are interacting and correcting you, um, but I think the the more theoretical or or uh, um, hermeneutical answer to that question I think is to to recognize uh, the kind of the 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 way that uh, typological patterns work out in scripture, um, and uh, you have. Um, uh, you have, uh, I would, earlier this morning, I was uh, recording a podcast um, with on Daniel 8, which is the prophecy of Persia and Alexander the Great, and the Persia's the ram, Alexander's the goat, and they have this clash, and then this horn grows up out of a- Alexander's shattered kingdom, uh, and that horn is uh, uh, un- uh, identified typically as Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the, the uh, king who, oppresses the Jews during the uh, in the lead- up to the Maccabean revolt and I think that's there I think that um, that's right but then you have this this characterization of Antiochus that um, could apply to many other figures without saying that Daniel 8 is talking about them uh, within the context of Daniel you you have a character who uh, has a number of similarities in Belshazzar I mean Belshazzar is misusing the the sacred furnishings of the temple, Antiochus is going to misuse the temple itself and the holy people. So you have this analogy between Belshazzar and Antiochus that's built into the book of Daniel. And then you have different figures later on in Israel's history. uh, I think of the Herods, for example, uh, who are Antiochus-like characters doing some of the same kinds of things differently. But that doesn't mean that Daniel is about those. But it gives us an insight into what kind of what kind of character we're talking about. Uh, and we, uh, you know, I think we can do, we can think about this um, outside of uh, outside of using biblical types. I mean, your current prime minister, uh, as I understand it, kind of styles himself as a Churchillian figure, uh, and so he's got this type of great prime minister that he's trying to trying to live up to. Uh, and uh, if you would say, you know, Boris has uh, has handled this or that particular crisis, I don't know that anybody says this, but Boris has handled this or that crisis in a Churchillian with Churchillian kind of um, uh, bravado. Um, bravado certainly, he handles lots of things with bravado. I don't know if it's Churchillian bravado, um, but uh, if if you uh, you're using that type, and it doesn't mean that he's there's a direct kind of prophecy of Boris Johnson and Churchill, it means that you have this kind of abstracted sketch of a character that is repeatedly being applied. And I think that's what we have in scripture. Scriptural prophecies are about particular events, I think. Um, uh, uh, Revelation is about a particular sequence of events. I think it's largely about events of the first century. But then you can see those pattern of events they're not being directly prophesied, but they do get repeated. Characters reappear. There are, uh, you know, there are Babylons um, outside the first century that drink the blood of the saints. Uh, there are beasts that come up from the sea. There have been plenty of beasts in the last century of, uh, of human history that have come up from the sea and uh, and uh, trampled down the saints. Uh, and you can use that, that characterization that we have of the beast in Revelation 13 as a way of uh, uh, characterizing and grappling with uh, what we see in our own time, and then also kind of um, anticipating the direction. One of one of the things, an example from Revelation. <clears throat> I, I don't think Revelation is talking about the um, the the cooperation between the Nazis and uh, the the compromising church. I don't think that's what is prophesying. But the sea beast and the land beast. Uh, that is what was happening in Nazi Germany. You had the sea beast of the Nazi regime, and you had the land beast, which is a religious figure, religious beast in Revelation 13, and they're cooperating in order to suppress and trample down the faithful, those uh, those Christians who who, who protest against the Nazi regime. So you have it's not it's not the the Revelation 13 is prophesying of that, but you have this this way of understanding. If you, saw, if you saw Hitler rising, then if you're reading in terms, of, reading through the lens of Revelation 13, you would think, well, I, I need to be, an, I should be anticipating that there are going to be some pastors and some churches that are going to be propagandists for the Nazis. That's going to happen. There's going to be some churches that are propagandists for the Soviet Union, that are, that are Stalin's apologists. Uh, whatever, whatever other tyrant, whatever other sea beast you see emerging. So, um, uh, so I think that re- recognizing that that pattern—that you have this specific fulfillment—and you under you you, gra- you you figure that out by looking at at particular historical contexts—but uh, that particular fulfillment itself becomes a way of understanding later events that are not that are not specifically being prophesied. Brilliant! Thank you so much, Peter. Um, well, I think. Should we give a round of applause, shall we? We'll, We'll mark the end of the teaching bit of the day. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you. Great to be with you.